So if I were to assign you an experiment for each of you to go out sometime during this week and ask 10 random people that you run into on the streets, what is, this question, what is the heart of Christianity? What is the heart of Christianity? My guess is that at least a majority, probably a very significant majority of those to whom you ask this question would answer in, in some way like this. Well, it's about being good. It's about being good. And oftentimes this is the, the response. This is not just something that we get from outside of the church, but also inside of the church as well. Um, this is kind of slips out in, in, in our language sometimes when we're talking to say, well, I, I'm a good Christian, um, using that phrase. And, or when somebody's pressing on us because of a certain thing, we, we can start to defend ourselves by listing the good things that we've done. I, I'm nice to people, I care for people, I serve people, and so on. And so this idea that somehow Christianity is all about making us good, which has an element and a grain of truth in it, uh, I won't get entirely nuanced with that tonight, but somehow this has risen to the foreground about, well, this is what this, this faith is all about. Now, in this parable in Luke 15, this parable uh, that's known as the parable of the prodigal son, the father and two sons, really, it's about, Jesus shocks us. He shocks the people of his day, and he shocks us today as well. As we come to Act 2 uh, in this parable, we were in Act 1 last week, and we were dealing with the younger brother. Um, that shock comes to the center. This isn't just peripheral in this story. It's actually the main point of the story, the main point of the parable, is to shock us. And we know that by, by asymmetry in, in Luke 15. There are three stories that Jesus tells, right? About the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And it's in this third story that we get the pattern broken. Up to this point, the pattern has been something has been lost, someone goes out to find it, a celebration ensues, and others are invited into the celebration. And we've had all of those steps now in this third story up to this point. And then in verse 25, we read, now his older son was in the field. So if you're listening to Jesus telling this parable, your attention is quickly grabbed now by virtue of the fact that the pattern has been broken. And here we come into this central focus of this story. And here's the shock. The shock is this, that the good guy at the end of the story is on the outside, not at the banquet table. And that the bad guy, the notorious sinner, is on the inside, celebrating with the Father. So what this means is that you can be good and miss out on the banquet of the Father. You can be good and still be a rebel and be lost. Which has to indicate that the heart of the Christian faith is not actually about being good. Much as the street level understanding of it says that that's what it's about. It's got to be about something deeper. Remember to whom the story is being told, verses 1 and 2. It's the Pharisees and the scribes, the good guys, to whom Jesus is saying these three stories. And why is he telling them these stories? Because Jesus in his kingdom ministry, his itinerant ministry around Judea and, uh, and Galilee, is feasting with and parting with and celebrating with the sinners and the tax collectors. The younger brothers, the rebels, the explicitly bad people. 
And so Jesus is telling this story to draw their attention, these good guys, these elder brothers, to this issue that they can't see in their own lives. So we want to explore this question tonight of how can a good person be lost? What is the sin of the elder brother in the story? What is his rebellion? How does that manifest itself in his heart, attitude, and life? And then finally, what does this tell all of us about the heart of Christianity? If it's not really, the heart isn't really just being good, then the heart is something else. So what does this story tell us that the heart of it all is? So that this sin of the elder brother, verse 25, he comes home, right? He comes from out in the field and he finds a servant, probably a young boy, just hanging around. One of the village boys knows there's a party going on. Hey boy, come over here and tell me what's happening Why do I hear all this noise? And the boy recounts to him, your brother has come home, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So he's throwing a party. And the elder brother's response is not exactly, oh, this is great news. We read in verse 28, but he was angry and he refused to go in. He was angry and he refused to go in. So to get at the heart of his issue, we have to get at the heart of his anger right in this story. Now there are a couple of reasons that he's angry. One I would say is more of a sub-reason. The other is the real reason and that's where we'll focus. But first, the, the, the sub-reason has to be in some ways an economic reason. Remember the father had already divided his estate between his two sons. One son had gone out and spent all that he had in fruitless, reckless living and waste it all and come back. When he comes back, the father welcomes him, kills the fattened calf, that was a treasured possession, and then throws an extravagant party to celebrate the son's return. At whose expense is the party being had? The elder brother knows full well that if those resources had not been used in this case to welcome home this ridiculous brother of his, they would have gone into his inheritance that he would have had full rights over when his father had passed away. So at one level, there's an economic reason to his anger and frustration at the younger, younger brother's return. But there's a second reason that's a bigger reason that uncovers much of his heart in his rebellion. This welcoming home of his younger brother has offended deeply the elder brother's sense of honor. It's offended his sense of honor. To maintain honor for the family in this traditional village setting, the younger brother must pay the penalty for his actions. He must be punished. Some path of restitution needs to be set out for him to come back into this situation. And for the father to welcome the younger brother home as he has done without even consulting the elder brother, how could he do such a thing? And not to make him pay a penalty or to grovel, but to honor him. For the, old, for the elder brother, this was too much. This was going too far. This dishonored the family potentially in the village. And in this very act, the father undercuts the elder brother's whole reasons for serving the father. He undercuts it in this action of welcoming the younger brother home. Now, why was the elder brother serving the father? Why was he being so good? As he says it in his protest in verse 29, look, these many years I have served you, I've never disobeyed your command. Why was he serving the father? 
for what he could get in return. For honor. For a good reputation. Perhaps even for a young goat so that he can have a party with his friends. This makes a lot of sense in the traditional village culture and setting in which this story is told and taking place. It's a culture that values honor above everything else. So the elder brother's path of staying near to his father and of doing his duty in serving him is the surest way for the elder brother to make a name for himself in his cultural context. It's the surest way for the brother, the elder brother, to become someone in his world. He's not serving the father for his own sake or out of a heart of love or out of delight in the father's goodness and and blessing over him. He's serving the father for what he can get in return. In this case, honor and a reputation. Elder brothers serve God for what they can get back. That means that the goodness and the moral conformity of the elder brother is his way of putting God, the Father, into his debt. Of controlling God. And of gaining leverage upon him in some way. There's a great example of this that Tim Keller on his book on this parable points to from Peter Schaeffer's play Amadeus. Through the bargain that the young composer Salieri makes with God. And this is what that young composer says. He says this. I would offer up secretly the proudest prayer a boy could think of. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return... I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man all I can. God, I will do these things for you, he says. I will give you my faithful duty, dutiful service. I will serve my fellow man if you will come through on your end. And meet your end of the bargain. That's the heart and the bargain of every elder brother. Salvation or life for the elder brother is not, therefore, a gift that's given by God freely to be received. It's rather the attainment of certain things which we indebt God to give to us. In the case of Salieri, it's a musical brilliance. That's his ultimate God, the ultimate thing that he believes will give him life. And then, therefore, in the heart of the elder brother, the father then is simply a means to a self-appointed end for us. Honor, business success, good circumstances, a godly wife, godly husband. God, I'll hold my end of the bargain. I'll keep myself chaste. I won't lie. I won't cheat. I won't steal. I'll give myself over to you. I'll serve you. God, just give me what I really want. Just give me a goat to celebrate. 
elder brothers don't do good for the sheer goodness of it or for God or for the others whom they serve. When they serve the poor or when they tell the truth, they actually ultimately do it for who? For themselves. The goodness of the elder brother is a means to serving ultimately himself. And though their actions may be morally good and upstanding to all who observe them, the fundamental sickness of the human heart, which is a self-centeredness that's rooted down deep, remains entirely unaffected in the heart of an elder brother. So what's the sin of the elder brother? Fundamentally, it's failing to receive life as a gift from God. But instead, using God to get what I really want. Which means that the elder brother, in the end, sees himself as his own savior. And God merely as the means to his plan of salvation. That's the fundamental heart issue of sin for all of us is seeing ourselves in that position of control and having a plan of some kind of self-salvation by which we will justify our existence to a watching world, by which we will silence the critics. It's not really all that different, is it, from the notorious, loud, and obvious sins of the younger brother. Despite their wildly divergent behavior, one who stays near and does his duty, the other who shirks his duty gets what he wants immediately from the Father and goes out and pursues his plan of salvation. Both, in the end, use the Father to get what they have determined they really want. Their self-centered, self-determined end. One, a free-spirited rebel. The other, a traditional moral conformist. Both, though, equally lost. Both rebels from the Father's heart of love in this story, both of whom deeply insult the father, showing that their hearts are wrong. The younger brother's insults, which we saw last week, are obvious. Father, give me my share, wishing his father to be dead. The elder brother's insults now become obvious as things change. He refuses, it says in verse 28. He got angry and refused to go in. In that day, the sons of a family, when the family had a banquet and had guests, were required by social mores to go into, at least at a very minimum, and and greet the guests. Not to do so would be to shame their parents. And in fact, often in Middle East village culture, the eldest son of the family would be set aside to serve the guests of the family. As a way of the family saying to the guests, you are so important, you are so significant to us that even our eldest son would serve you. The elder brother knows all of these categories which he is supposed to now perform faithfully and has the opportunity. He refuses to go in. And that refusal to go in would have been known to all at the banquet because things were public in those days. People would have whispered there would have been a hush over the banquet hall at the elder brother's refusal to go in, that would have deeply insulted publicly his father. And if we read on then in verse 29, as he begins to speak and shows more of his heart, as we'll look at in a moment, he says, first thing he says is, look. Look, these many years I have served you. That's a huge statement of disrespect and insult. In that culture, where honor was so significant, you never addressed your father without saying father. 
So the elder brother and the younger brother are equally insulting of the father's heart of love. Showing and demonstrating a heart in them of rebellion and of running the other way. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because at the end of the story, who's still on the outside? The notorious sinner, the rebel, the younger brother who ran away and spent it all and squandered his life. He's on the inside of the banquet. The elder brother were left in this sort of narrative tension. An unfinished story remains on the outside looking in. Which is to say this, if we follow the the, the thrust of Jesus' story here, it is to say that the, the rebellion of an elder brother is spiritually far more dangerous than the rebellion of the younger brother. Why? It's why, in some ways, mines are more dangerous than tanks when you're fighting a war. You can't see them. The younger brother's rebellion is on display. No one would question that the younger brother had dishonored and insulted his father, had lost the connection to his father's heart. But the elder brother, he was the honored one in the village. He was the faithful one. Man, we knew that younger brother, what a terrible guy he was. But look at the elder brother. Look how great he's living. Look how well he's doing. This is a far more insidious disease that Jesus is saying to his hearers, remember, who are elder brothers, the scribes and the Pharisees, watch out. So as the elder brother then opens his mouth in verse 29, what are the signs of this kind of rebellion in his life? And I just want to point to three things rather quickly. The first is that everything that the elder brother does when he comes back from the field is laced with anger and resentment. Lurking beneath the surface of the heart of the elder brother is anger and resentment. When things don't go as planned, elder brothers explode. It's not just a disappointment or an angst over the suffering. It, it turns, or when things aren't, don't work out quite like we want them to, but it turns into an anger and a bitterness. Because elder brothers are all about control. And using their goodness to control God, to give us what we want. And so when God chooses to arrange our lives in ways that we don't actually want, elder brothers get angry and bitter to the core. The elder brothers feel that the father's indebted to them to, to give them what they ultimately need because of their good actions, because they've spent their life in this way. Furthermore, an elder brother thinks that he deserves everything. And when this elder brother sees the father embrace the younger brother and give a free gift to him, it offends his sensibilities. It doesn't comport with his worldview that I am to get what I have earned. And nothing offends one who believes that he's earned something more than it being given freely to someone who doesn't deserve it. And that's what the elder brother sees. Secondly, the elder brother's see themselves as superior, as an elevated class of human beings. We see that clearly in verse 30. Note the elder brother's careful choice of words. But when this son of yours, he will refuse to call him his brother. The father comes right back at him at his closing statement and says, 
it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours, for this your brother. Elder brothers begin to develop a sense of superiority in their goodness. Elder brothers work hard for their reputations. Elder brothers follow the, 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 uh, the, this, the, set, the rules of their culture. They climb and scrape and, 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 and uh, work hard to get to the top. And when they get there, they can't help but look down on those lowly younger brothers who have gone their own way and screwed up their lives and they deserve it anyway. This son of yours. I've served you faithfully all these years. I've never disobeyed you. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, which by the way was some kind, we don't know, he hadn't met the, the younger brother yet. We actually don't know that that's what the, the, the younger brother was doing. So here's the, the elder brother embellishing already. He hasn't heard exactly what's going on in the younger brother's life. Pushing him down. I've earned this. It's not going to be taken away from me by anyone. Uh, many years ago, I've shared this before, I did a, a, a little survey door to door in Jackson, Mississippi, where Mandy and I were living for a year, and asked this question to people. I said, what is your first, what's the first word that comes to mind when you think of church? And the overwhelming answer was judgmental and hypocritical. Elder brothers are judgmental on younger brothers. Elder brothers think that they've lived up to a higher standard and therefore they're going to judge those who haven't lived up to a higher standard. And when we fall into this trap as elder brothers and we get the superiority complex, it's not a far step from there to beginning to mistreat or to abuse those that we see ourselves as better than. In some ways, the roots of all classism and racism are found in the elder brother's heart, who begins to think that by virtue of what I've done, I'm better than they are. And as soon as I start to think that I'm better than you, that begins to justify my mistreatment of you on an individual and on a systemic level. We can be merciless. A great example of this in popular culture today is from Les Mis and Javert's mercilessness with Jean Valjean. A good example of an elder brother. Third, elder brothers have this kind of dryness and drudgery in their service. He slips in verse 30, in verse 29. He says, look, these many years I have served you. And the word that he uses for serve, duleo, is connected to the word, is, is, has the shades of meaning of slave. Elder brothers do their duty out of a slavish mentality for what they can get. Not out of a heart of joy and life that's been transformed by their father. So if being good isn't the heart of Christianity, then what is at the heart? If being good isn't a guarantee that you won't be absolutely lost and in rebellion, then what is? And I would simply say to you that it's the costly love of God that can melt the rebellion and mistrust in both the hearts of the younger brothers among us and the elder brothers among us and take rebels and turn them into sons. Take self-centered rebels and turn them into loving, joyful sons of the Father whose mistrust of, of the Father is undone by the greatness of this love of the Father. We saw in Act 1 that the Father runs to his Son and shames himself in so doing. What do we see here, see here in Act 2? The Father gets up from the banquet. No Oriental patriarch would have gotten up and left his guests at the banquet. He gets up from the banquet. He goes out to where his Son is. And it says that he entreats him in verse 28, 29, 28. He entreats him. 
That is, he comes alongside, he appeals to the son. He doesn't get angry at him, he doesn't judge him. And in fact, what is the first word out of the father's mouth? Son. Son. Despite being publicly insulted, the father shames himself once again and goes out to meet the son in his rebellion and says, son. And entreats him and pleads with him to come in to the feast. He overlooks the offense. In many ways, he takes the shame of that offense upon himself as he goes out to meet him and to plead with him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead. This your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. To younger brothers, to elder brothers, and I might just add that younger brothers can quickly be found and turn into elder brothers, and elder brothers are often only one circumstance away from losing their cool, blowing their top, and turning into wild and rambunctious younger brothers. But to younger brothers and to elder brothers, in rebellion from the Father's heart of love, the thing that undoes this is the Father's step toward us. His costly step toward us. And it's this costly step toward us, most of all displayed in Jesus coming among us and taking upon himself our shame, that we find the heart of Christianity. Younger brothers who have spent their lives pursuing life in a, in a crazy way might come to the end of their rope more quickly to see their need to, to receive the Father's embrace. Elder brothers who have spent their life getting the trinkets and toys and medals and medallions that the world has to give might find it harder to see their need for a God who's willing to pour himself out to come among us and to receive us as his own. But the remedy for rebellion, what we need deeply in our lives, to break our mistrust of God, to break our running our own way, to destroy our self-made plans for salvation and justification, is what's at the heart of this story, which is the heart of God, who takes your shame upon himself, who comes out to either embrace you or to entreat you to come in to his banquet feast. Will you lay down your elder brotherishness or your younger brotherishness and come to his feast and find life all of a sudden flowing in and out of you for the glory of your Father. Amen.